Trigger warning, this episode contains discussion on necrophilia. I Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly podcast brought to you by the Spencers of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror, cult, and subversive cinema with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are officially covering our first two films of our broadened cinematic scope on the podcast and venturing into the taboo subject of necrophilia. But we are being doubly subversive, because why not? We are the spinsters of horror, and we're talking specifically about female necrophilia and its representation in two similar but very different films, the Canadian independent film Kissed from 1996 and the German cult classic Necromantic 2 from 1991. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. Love and you. Love and you. Love, love and you. Was like love and death. So Kelly, why did we choose these two films and the topic? <laughs> so yeah, this is our first official episode after our announcement of covering a larger, greater diversity of movies. So I know you all listeners are excited for this evolution of our podcast, as are we. This idea came to me after re-watching both Necromantic 2 and Kissed uh, recently. It was a couple of months ago, and I just saw similar and relatable themes in both of them. Also, I just think they're both pretty fantastic movies. I approached Jess to see if, uh, you know, if you wanted to talk about necrophilia. And yeah, I was thrilled <laughs> that you were on board because these are these are some crossing over of some interests of mine in, res- in the sense of cinematic interests, should clarify. Yeah, <laughs> cinematic interests for sure. We are definitely crossing into Kelly territory, which I have crossed over into this area before when we did the Disturbing Films for Curious yes. Mind and Kelly introduced me to Necromantic 2 and the topic and the ideas came from that because I remember revisiting that discussion. I'm like, oh shit, we talked about some of the things that we're going to talk about more in depth here in this episode. So I'm really excited and pumped to get into this episode because it's challenge a lot of old narratives that I have just even around the idea of necrophilia to begin with. So yeah, Kelly, do we want to just jump into this and start talking about it? (laughs) I certainly do. (laughs) So a little brief introduction to necrophilia, then we'll get into our female necrophiliac. So necrophilia, folks, it's a what's called a paraphilia. A paraphilia is a condition in which a person's sexual arousal and gratification is dependent upon fantasizing about and engaging in sexual behavior that is atypical and extreme. It's more so considered a disorder or something to worry about if it causes distress or threatens to harm other people. Necrophilia is part of the 
sexual taboos along with sadism, cannibalism, and vampirism, and implies sexual appreciation for the dead, which is often an act perpetrated by men on female corpses, because here's the thing, the dead won't reject or oppose them, as well as tell stories or argue with them during these so societally considered unacceptable perversions because of a the lack of consent and of mutual pleasure. So what was really interesting is that this is an area of paraphilia that is not extensively researched or studied, and what does exist is in very small amounts of research and case studies because of the nature of it, because it's so taboo. And it's really a notorious act that's only really talked about in stories, novels, and even in movies because it lacks adequate theoretical and academic analysis. What we do have comes from a more psychological and psychiatric studies, and we, we see less of a criminological study studies on this done, um, considering that this act is often related to uh, serial killers or people with uh, severe mental conditions. So since there's such a lack of research and study of it, there's like a very brief history about necrophilia. It's mostly rumors and stories that have come out from like ancient Egyptian times, um, the times of like, you know, ideas of like female Egyptian mummies were often discovered in worse state of decay because their mummification process was delayed three to four days so that rotting could happen to detract embalmers from having sex with their corpses. Got any other interesting facts from the history of necrophilia? Yeah, like you said, Jess, this is, there's not a lot of information about this because, well, this, the act of necrophilia is carried out in secret and the victim is unable to report these acts, right? So, because they're corpses. And so, because the ideology is not completely understood, we don't really know a lot about necrophilia in and of itself, but clinicians have developed a classification system. And there's apparently 10 classes of uh, necrophilia or 10 classes of necrophiliacs that folks could be put into these certain groups. Uh, for example, genuine necrophiles. Those are the ones that have persistent sexual attraction to corpses with recurrent intense urges and sexually arousing fantasies involving a corpse over a period of six months. We have our violent necrophiles, so the homicidal necrophiliac tendencies to kill to obtain corpses for sexual intercourse. And we have our true necrophiles that are exclusively interested in corpses and not in living people. They are capable of killing a person to get a corpse. And where does that relate to us in Canada? Because of course, we're Canadian. Let's relay it all back to where we live because I was curious in this rabbit hole I was going down is so necrophilia in Canada. Our law states that every person is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of no more than five years or is guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction who improperly or indecently interferes with or offers any indignity to a dead human body or human remains, whether buried or not. So they don't say necrophilia, but they're toying with the words because that's a very, well, I would say a taboo word. Indecency. It would be indecent, improper to fondle or have sex with a corpse. Anything that we would deem as like deeply and culturally like taboo, let's not do that. And it is uh, punishable by the law here in Canada. Who knew? And a lot of various different laws are kind of informed by these different studies about necrophilia. Like if you want to learn more, you can go 
go and look up Agrawal's ten, uh, 2010 10 classification model of the different classifications of necrophilia that can go into more in detail of the different classifications. Kelly went into a few that are going to relate more to what we're talking about in the podcast today. But yeah, necrophilia in medical studies is often seen as a, a rare male perversion and often associated with serial killers. So as more data and research is coming out in the 20th century, it's still, like Kelly said, reporting is minimal because no one really comes out and reports that they are having sex with a corp. And in, in some cases, it's kind of seen as a victimless crime because a corpse is not seen as a living person. So Kelly has given like the laws here in Canada not really, they don't really mention necrophilia, but it has been outlawed since 1985. But throughout different countries around the world, it's often, if you, necrophilia is never really mentioned in their laws. It's just stated like no violation of a corpse. And if you violate the corpse, you go to jail for up to a five years, or you may have to pay a fine. And there's other places where it's not even considered an illegal act in other countries. And even in some certain states in the US, there's not a lot of laws around it because like we said, it's considered a victimless crime. And the reason why we're all here today is that we are focusing down on the female necrophiliac. So like you said, Jess, mainly thought of as a male sexual perversion, female necrophiliacs are rare in art and literature. Um, We don't see a lot. I've watched a good amount of movies that involve necrophilia, and it's often men that are perpetrating these quote-unquote crimes. Um, we, We read this really incredible article called Performing Necrophilia, Forms of Female Dominance in Kissed by Lynn uh, Stopkowicz, Necromantic and Necromantic 2 by Jörg Butkeret. So it had great information, great kind of theories, thoughts, analyses about all of those movies. But, you know, one of the, some of the main things that they talked about, and we'll get into female dominance, but male necrophiliacs. You mentioned it before, Jess, but Male necrophiliacs, in generally speaking, enjoy the passivity, the helplessness, and the silence of the female corpse. They cannot be rejected. They can just have them anytime they want. So, mm-hmm. therefore, in a society, ours, that places men as dominant, quote, and assertive, quote, and women as, quote, passive and sexualized, the female necrophiliac is transgressing these social and sexual norms. And that's what's so interesting to me about it. And, of course, these two movies we're going to talk about. So our female necrophiliac is transgressing taboos between life and death, social, sexual politics, she is a very intriguing figure. Yeah, and it's so intriguing because I never even myself considered uh, female necrophilia as something that could exist, which is interesting because people such as like Sigmund Freud literally denied the existence of the female necrophilia because it's considered a form of perversion that is linked to a fetishism and the idea of castration of the mother's phallus in childhood. So no, you know, that can exist, that women don't want that. And then to go even further, and this was a really frustrating point when I discovered (laughs) this, from German social psychologist. Eric Fromm says that women can't be into necrophilia because they can't get pregnant from a corpse. Women are always biophilias for a reason. What is that reason? To procreate. Women only enjoy sex to procreate. The same time and time again, women are always told when it comes to our sexual needs and a sexual fulfillment. So to have women, like Kelly said, be active participants and dominate their partners in sexual acts, and on top of that too, not need penetration to have sex, goes against all kinds of Western ideas of womanhood and sex. Yeah. I mean, men always have that question, right? How how does a woman have sex with a corpse? How does that? 
that work? Every time. How does that work? Well, I know <laughs> sexual education is poor and a lot, like worldwide poor. America, extra poor. But a little bit of education can go a long way. So male-oriented sex and the understanding of sexual intercourse, or at least for heterosexuals, implies that penetration is needed for intercourse to happen. Like that is sex. It's penis and vagina sex. And so our female necrophiliacs are going beyond it because it doesn't always include penetration. So this kind of heterosexual, heteronormative viewpoint of sex between men and women, they still hold penetration as this, quote, main event, and they neglect all other aspects of sexual activities and arousal and the female anatomy. So it just blows their mind. They're like, but there's no penis. How do you do this? Folks, it's called dry humping. Like, again, if we know, if you know, take five minutes to learn about female anatomy, there's lots of fun different ways that women enjoy sexual pleasure. So, you know, your narrow mindedness is not welcome here. But that's I mean, that's always such a random kind of graphic question to ask these people as well who view their sexuality. And so many of us. It's very private. It's very personal. They're like, well, how do you have sex with a corpse? It's like, I don't know. Use your imagination. You don't have any. Do you? The case of Karen Greenlee. So Karen Greenlee is an infamous female necrophiliac. She's also a woman very important to both of the movies we're going to be talking about today. She is our, quote, morgue rat. So she is a woman that was convicted of stealing a hearse and having sex with the corpse it contained. She's considered as the best known modern practitioner of necrophilia, and her case is a subject of much research. Again, due to her being a woman, according to some research, only about 10% of known necrophiles are women. So yeah, that's about 90% of them. The whole rest of them are men. So Karen Greenlee worked as an apprentice embalmer at the Memorial Lawn Mortuary in California. On December 17th, 1979, she stole the hearse belonging to the funeral home that she was supposed to drive to a private burial. So she stole that hearse, which carried the body of a 33-year-old young man. And yeah, she was found later on. There was a a letter found also in the casket. It was a four and a half page letter confessing to trysts, a sexual romantic tryst between 20 to 40 dead men. And the letter was filled with remorse at the time filled with remorse over her sexual desires like why do I do this why am I afraid of love Mm -hmm. and relationships I'm a morgue rat this is my rat hole perhaps my grave this is quotes from her her letter and she did this very eye-opening very candid honest interview with Apocalypse Culture uh, a magazine in 1987 Um, and another quote from her it said when I wrote that letter I was still listening to society. Everyone said that necrophilia was wrong, so I must be doing something wrong. But the more people tried to convince me I was crazy, the more sure of my desires I became. And 
And that is what's so interesting about the case of Karen Greeley is that by 1987, she was feeling more comfortable about her sexuality. So what she was going through, and she talks about in this and in the interview, is when she had when she had that episode of stealing the corpse and mm-hmm. you know getting caught and becoming like the press having a field day with her case and stuff like that. She felt felt very alone and isolated mm-hmm. because she couldn't understand herself where this attraction to having sex with corpses was coming from. Why this felt so important to her, and she didn't really accept herself at the time. And she was trying to conform to this heteronormative state of life, right? That you're supposed to loving male bodies and physical bodies that are alive. And so to read in 1987 how she was becoming more comfortable with her sexuality and then she did that by stop listening to what society deems as both wrong and deviant. We hear this time and time again when people are coming to terms with their own sexuality in various other ways in their lives. When they stop listening to society and stop hearing the narrative that what she's doing is wrong and that she shouldn't be doing it and is morally unacceptable, she was able to kind of free herself from that and also explore her own feelings around it. And it was really interesting hearing her talk about why she has this attraction to the dead. You learn more about how it was something that she was attracted to her whole life, that death and everything that surrounded it. It's not necessarily just about the corpse. It's about the funeral services. It's about the atmosphere of death, holding uh, services for her pets, you know, exploring funeral homes Mm -hmm. and just being really interested in that aura, right? That sexual presence. And that there is this also this like, female empowerment when she talks about like you said getting asked that question she gets asked the question all the time well how do you do that and she gets men approaching her being like how i'm gonna change your mind i'm gonna give you the best sexual experience ever that will change your mind that will fix you right and female and women and lesbian women get this as well Mm -hmm. um you know, that men will come around and say, well, no, you just haven't had a good enough dick yet to change how you feel about this, right? And you're just like, wow. And then she goes to talk about how this is not unheard of, that she's not the only Mm -hmm. necrophile, right? Mm -hmm. She's working in the funeral industry. She's like, this is not unheard of. People have been doing this for centuries. There are historical records of reports of men violating female corpses for centuries. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't get talked about because it's men doing it. But because she's a woman and she's doing it, the press had a field day comparing her to an actual serial killer. Yeah, it's extra deviant, right? Yeah. So Karen also referenced another female necrophiliac that Kelly shared uh, her interviewed on one of our social media posts. It was uh, Leela Wendell, who is the author and head of the American Association of Necrophiliac Research and Enlightenment. And she participated in a radio interview on the WBAB radio program in 1999 to discuss necrophilia in her organization. And It was really interesting because as they were talking to her, she talks about how she's like, I'm not advertising it. I'm creating a place of support for people and community so people can understand and talk more to each other about it and understand it within themselves. And I don't know, Kelly, you listened to this interview. It was really interesting how they approach her and ask her questions about like, well, how do you deal with consent, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a bot. You know, like, what what were your thoughts on that? It was infuriating to listen to Mm -hmm. because there was predominantly men uh, interviewing her and they were so aggressive. I think necrophilia puts so many people's backs up. They're like, oh, whoa, like we don't talk. You definitely do not talk about necrophilia. That is definitely like, I think it's one of like the last taboos 
in the 21st century and it's and it's so hard to even comprehend i get that these are not yeah. regular conversations that people have mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis well you know maybe you and i <laughs> but you know <laughs> in press like again it happens very personal it's very private like a lot of a lot of folks sexuality you know if it run mm-hmm. runs through the realm of something that's not so quote vanilla right if it's different and yeah. paraphilias are they tread into dangerous places and can be very harmful. Again, if you are a a, a dangerous necrophile that you are killing to get your sexual gratification, that is a different thing. That's not what this person was. Mm -hmm. They were just so aggressive about it. Again, that whole like, well, how do you do it? Like, so like egging her on. They just want, again, these like graphic details because the morbid curiosity that I think these men have, they can't comprehend. Again, like we were saying about how one has sex with corpses. And I know... An aspect that bothered both you and I of this is that, of course, it brings it back to witchcraft, right? They tell her that she's a witch. Yeah, they literally, because of the way she described her experience as like a psychic ceremony that was, that also encompasses um, sexual arousal, which does happen Mm -hmm. in various different types of uh, ritual practices and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Like you're going through a whole um, experience, a whole physical, visceral experience in your body. And we'll get more into this when we talk about Sandra in the film Kiss, but she talked about this as a psychic ex- a ceremony and experience and instantly they're like oh then you're a witch mm, and mm-hmm. we'll definitely get into that too and I also you know and because I know that people will probably just want to make a mention I'm like what about bodily autonomy that's a whole other discussion for a whole other episode <laughs> because some of the things that they brought up about bodily autonomy brings up this whole idea of how people feel like that we never truly own our bodies that once we die our body either goes to medical science or it belongs to religious ideology Mm -hmm. but whose religious ideology whose medical science Mm -hmm. not the corpse itself because they kept bringing up the fact like well you don't have the permission of the corpse and she's like yeah but it's just a the body's dead. The spirit's gone. Your religion tells you the spirit's gone. Mm-hmm. It's really that you guys are remembering, remembering the corpse. You guys feel, it's almost yeah. like you feel violated by this act is happening, yeah. but you don't know. And she's like, but this is like a spiritual mm-hmm. moment for me. So not going to get into that topic yeah. because it's like a yeah. whole other thing, but, it's but it comes up. Yeah, definitely. It's a religious taboo, a cultural taboo, sexual taboo. Like it's just deeply taboo. And we're here to now the spicy spinsters, uh, here to talk about (laughs) taboos. So shall we get into our first movie? Yes, let's do this. Let's talk about Kissed from 1996. When a thing turns into its opposite, when love becomes hate, or life turns into death, it's explosive. Done this before. 
Why do you need to know all the details? I'm just curious. That's all anyone would be. What's this? This is a record of everything I've done in the last two weeks. This is not going to help you understand me. It's like looking into the sun without going blind. And I know what I have to do now. I just, I don't know what to do. This movie, I actually watched multiple times as a teenager. I remember my best friend Lisa and I watching this movie. So this came out in 1996. So it's like prime teenager Kelly time to be watching these types of things. And I really liked it. Um, I hadn't gone back to it since then, to be honest with you. I think it, I was just curious about like, again, necrophilia and movies and different different portrayals and representations of it because it can vary. And, you know, generally I watch a lot of like disturbing, messed up, like macabre cult exploitation, (laughs) exploitation heavy movies. So this was fun and interesting to go back to because, yeah, it's been like 30 years since I watched it. But like myself, like Sandra, has always been fascinated by death. I'm not scared. I was never scared of cemeteries or anything macabre. I embraced my darkness a long, long time ago, like Sandra. And so I was thrilled to cover it for our podcast. Yeah. And so I have an interesting story around this Mm. film and I think you're probably the reason how this film came into my life earlier on (laughs) through through my ex-girlfriend but she had mentioned the film Kiss to me once she was gonna watch it I think she was I don't know if you lent I don't I don't how she got it but she had it she's like I'm gonna watch this film Kiss and she handed it to me and I read about it and I was like oh no god I can't Mm. necrophilia that's like I was like I was like, that's his repulse. And I remember her telling yeah. me about it later. She's like, yeah, she rubs a dead bird on her. And I remember that vi- memory very vividly, her telling mm-hmm. me that. And I was like, no, I will never watch this film. And then I had added it to my cult watch mm-hmm. list because uh, myself, I've been getting into a lot more subversive and cult films. And this has com- comes up on many mm-hmm. lists, not connecting the two together at first. And then when you mentioned it for the pod your and your experience with it, I was like, cool. Like, yeah, definitely. Let's watch Kissed. Then I started watching the film and saw the scene with the bird. And all of a sudden, oh. a childhood memory came into it. And I was like, that's that movie. The movie right. that quickly, like, I was like, I will never watch it because. <laughs> It deal because I remember yeah. feeling deeply uncomfortable as a teenager yeah. of this like idea of death and yeah. you know rubbing a dead bird on someone. Yeah. So first time watch for me, um, and Excellent. definitely happy I watched it because <laughs> I I liked it. I'm so <laughs> glad. Well, I did see a little four star review on your letterbox, so yeah. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. So yeah, what did you like about Kiss? What I really like about this film is the earth real qualities to it. It Everything just feels out of focus the whole time. And when things do feel really in focus, it still kind of feels like a dream. 
you know, everything happens. It feels very Canadian, which I love. And Lynn, she does what she, she aimed to do in this film. You fall for the character of Sandra. I really like the character of Sandra. I literally understood her from the get-go to the end. And I saw lots of witchy elements in this mm-hmm. film. I remember texting you watching me like, oh my God. Yep. She's dancing in the moonlight yep. with a de- around a dead body. Yeah. Like that is what witch imagery right there. Yeah. So I just, I really enjoyed it. And the runtime is perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, like a part of me would want to see more, but a part of me is like, you know what? I'm happy to see where this goes. And not graphic. I, you know, for some reason, I guess I got in my head, it was not going to be graphic, but it showed me like this kind of beautiful side of a very taboo subject. So that's what I really liked about mm, it. You said it, like you kind of hit the nail on the head. And so this is like it literally released by MGM. This is our Hollywood necrophilia movie. Again, not my usual, but I thought it was fantastic. I loved watching this as an adult um, and revisiting it. It's, I thought it was really great. It's beautiful. It's warm. It's soft and comforting. Like this exact opposite of Necromantic 2, which is Very. usually like those are the movies that I watch so often. So this was such a, a really wonderful change of pace. Uh, I'm not usually one for v- voiceovers in movie, but oh my God, Molly mm. Parker has the most soothing voice that she could just like, she could tell me about anything. Just she could read me a story and, oh I, my and God. I fall asleep to it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> just read me your grocery list. It would be amazing. It was well-paced, looked great, great story. Again, overall, just I think a really wonderful movie. And I was really happy to see lots of praise and high ratings for it on Letterboxd across the board. Like I, again, saw this as a teenager a hundred years ago. And so I love seeing other people, they're watching it, they're talking about it, there's praise for it. And when we announced that we were going to be covering these two movies, so many people brought up Kissed. I was like, oh, there is, it does have a cult following, like this little indie kind of Canadian underrated gem that I didn't even know was Canadian. Again, I haven't revisited it in 30 years. Also written and directed by a woman is incredible, incredible to me. Another thing that also got me to really love this film as well was the fact that it was also a student film. Mm. It was her student thesis that she used for her Master of Fine Arts, you know, and she completely funded it independently Mm -hmm. and she had full creative control. And that was another thing that endears me to this film more is that we can see this artist's interpretation without it being distorted by any other kind of productions or any other kind of like fears from what Mm -hmm. the studios are going to say. Because I'll be honest, like my very first time of actual seeing a female necrophilia scene would be the neon demon Mm. and I remember watching that and feeling deeply uncomfortable I think it's because it was a female corpse Um, Mm. but also and I think back to some some of the way it was shot does not feel it felt very cold and jarring Mm -hmm. whereas it was very different seeing it seeing a female necrophilia you know approaching a corpse from a female feminine perspective Mm -hmm. And did you dislike anything about Kissed? My only dislike about Kissed is Matt, the character <laughs> of Matt. <laughs> and yeah. that storyline, which I know we'll get into, yeah. but 
now it makes sense when people, because I remember when you and I did, uh, we watched, um, we joined Quality Violet Cinema's uh, Necrophilia mm-hmm. movie streaming day, and they talked about, there's one film called Lost Control, which is very similar as a Japanese film about female necrophilia mm-hmm. that deals with, a, has a very same ending to Kiss. And when everyone kept saying, oh, it's just like Kiss, I was like, da, da, da. And then when I finally watched it, I was like, okay, now I get uh, why people don't. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> get um, yeah. So this movie is like, it's deeply 90s, and I yeah. love that for it, the soundtrack. Okay, so it's a like and a dislike, but the Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> song at the end, man, yes. is like, it's too much, but it's also uh, so perfect. It's perfect. It's so it's perfect. perfect and so Ugh. cheesy. Fumbling towards ecstasy, folks, Yes. as Canadians, Sarah McLaughlin is a national treasure. Um, Canadian music, Canadian female artists, like she is a she is a treasure. So when that song started, I was like, oh, I know this song. I'm like, which one is, is, exactly is it? I had to Google it. And I was like, so like, it's too much, yet so perfect at the same time. <laughs> Kissed. So what fantastic movie, our Hollywood necrophilia story, beautiful, stunning, great cinematography, soft, not, it's not graphic at all. We barely see any actual scenes of necrophilia displayed. It's all implied kind of behind the scenes off screen. But this was actually an adaptation of Barbara Gowdy's from 1992, a short novel called We So Seldom Look on Love. And so our writer director, Lynn Stopakowicz, read this and thought it'd be great to kind of try to adapt this into a story. So telling telling a necrophiliac's story from a female perspective. And again, you don't get that a lot. Necromantic 2 is written, directed by a man. There's not a Mm -hmm. lot of female stories about the female perspective written by a woman for for necrophilia. So that in and of itself, I think, is very subversive, very interesting, um, very taboo. As a side note, Jörg Butgered did say that Kiss is sort of the, quote, girly version of his movie in a <laughs> March 2009 interview. <laughs> fair, fair. Fair. But that is... <laughs> You know, but that is fair. That is kind of, this film is influenced by Lynn's own feminist film theories. And Kiss is a really good example of them because her film is coming from the example, like you said, of the female gaze. We see Sandra looking back through the camera instead of the camera always looking at her. Mm -hmm. And her focus and her approach to the necrophilia was all about us wanting to love the character and have the audience stay in love with her and her interests the entire time. And you feel that as you're watching the film. And that's why when it premiered at TIFF, like she was so nervous for people to receive this film because it's a film about a woman, you know, having sexual relationships with the course, but it was actually very positively well received. The only issues that Telefilm Canada had with it was the whole embalming scene Mm. because that makes people feel uncomfortable watching the actual process of embalming a corpse. But it's a very Canadian film. Sandra is so nice 
and she's polite and she's weird. Weird. Canadians, yeah. we are strange and we are good at hiding our strangeness <laughs> under politeness. <laughs> true and she's so likable like she's so weird so but so just like sweet and charming and uh yeah just likable and you wouldn't yeah. again you wouldn't you I think people would come into a necrophilia movie expecting our gruesomeness our darkness the macabre that's our other movie um, but this one is so like I said so soft and so necrophilia in kissed is normalized death is also Mm. normalized unlike in our society again where it's death is still just like hush hush go die in a room we're not going to talk about it let's just not do this but she uh, sandra embraces and i feel like protects death she comes at it Mm. from a very essentially a spiritual point of view and so when you brought up that other necrophiliac earlier like i brought up karen greenlee and i'm sorry now i forget the other woman's name lee Lee, but that kind of or say vibe, I guess you could say, but that kind of perspective, that kind of experience is very similar to how Sandra deals with her necrophilia, barely even deals with it. It's just, like I said, it's normalized. This is her life. And the movie opens with this voiceover about bodies shining like stars when they die. And so she's, she's more spiritual. She has this like philosophical kind of ideas surrounding death and quote crossing over is what she calls her Mm -hmm. sexual liaisons with corpses. Yeah, which is what also uh, Lee had talked about. Like when she's with corpses and feels sexual aroused, she feels herself calling the stole or spirit to the angel of death. And that's how Sandra explains her mm-hmm. necrophilia as a sacred ceremony that she is helping these young men, because she has uh, an attraction to younger men, mm-hmm. she's helping them cross over mm-hmm. to the other side of death. Mm-hmm. And is being, and death is kind of, she's embracing death through her. And it's so interesting because. It's like she's aware about how her love for the dead is taboo, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't see it as morally wrong because of the sacredness that she attaches to it, because of her compassion and love that she has for the dead. And it transcends, and it's like a spiritual practice that transcends anything that would be deemed weird or dangerous by mainstream society. Like from the moment she has that, I believe it's like the dead bird in the beginning where she takes it, like she has like a sacred ceremony when she buries it. She's out there and she's dancing around in the moonlight, like chanting, chanting, showing this utmost respect. You know, she feels, um, uncomfortable when she watches a a dead body undergo the embalming Mm -hmm. process because she feels like the corpse is being hurt. She's like, no, 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 you're hurting the corpse. Whereas like, you know, the director Wallace there, he's just like, no, it's just a corpse, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's the male perspective of uh, of necrophilia because we end up finding out that he is also a necrophile, Mm -hmm. but has a very different uh, approach to it. They are just objects. The bodies are just objects, but she doesn't feel that way. And that article that you had us read, Kelly, that was so interesting is how they compared Sandra to a goddess. Mm -hmm. And when I read this, I was like, oh yes, divination for the woman, Mm -hmm. like the woman and this divine form and that's how Sandra sees herself this divine practice that she's bringing to the world of the dead yeah so she is not framed as this like evil person she herself doesn't think she's evil or like you said immoral she's doing something good this is something Mm -hmm. that she needs to do she has to do she has no choice in doing that's her words. She herself, but also the movie, it seems like, is equating her to a deity. Again, she she's kind of compassionate around death and corpses. She truly does 
care for them. For her, it's beyond facts and figures and logic and reason. Again, we try to like, how can you do this? Why are you doing this? It's hard to really explain because it's more than the physical. It's metaphysical for her. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the environment that she's in. And we notice this a lot in this film that when she is with the corpses and she's in the funeral home, there's a lot of like coolness. There's a lot of, you know, uh, softer energy around her. And she's all about creating the atmosphere. She dances around the body. She feels very, you know, connected. And when we see her, when we'll talk about this, when we get into her relationship with Matt, it's very different. She feels very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. She, she, it's like she can't even like sit in her skin when she's in his apartment that is hot and yellow and gross. And she's like, this doesn't feel right to me. This feels very unnatural. Like to her, this was unnatural to her. And you could understand that. She's kind of seen as like this quasi divine creature. I say creature as like Mm -hmm. a negative thing, but as this out like a non-human type thing I guess if you know if you think of a goddess or a deity you're kind of non-human in a way but when I watched it this time around for it I did notice again lots of rituals a lot of these like death Mm -hmm. rituals these especially when we see it as a child because she herself has been surrounded by death wanting to be surrounded by death and intrigued by death and not afraid of death or corpses she has always enjoyed and appreciated the smell and the feel of death the stillness Mm -hmm. i think that's that's the issue with when she sleeps over at her boyfriend's place it's that it's hot it's busy it's like constricting whereas when she's at the morgue when she's at the funeral home she like takes off all her clothes and it's cool and it's still and it's just very open it's not so suffocating if you would think of like a divine temple of like a grecian goddess right Mm -hmm. they are these stone pillars there's open areas spaces it's silent it's nice and cool it just feet and so that's where you you really get this divine imagery Mm -hmm. of how maybe not not necessarily how she sees herself but how it feels around her and this is also kind of she's got this like earth real quality to her even in her childhood and like I said, I saw witchy imagery throughout the film, but then we do have an instance where her little, her friend, that she's someone she had befriended, yeah. you know, they had this really great connection and stuff like that. Carol. And when they, Carol, yeah. <laughs> and then when they, you know, they they work together, they're both weird together, yes. bearing like, you know, animals and having little ceremonies for them and stuff like that. And then when they do like a very witchy ceremony of dancing around to the music, mm-hmm. you know, celebration of the dead, yeah. not the normal, like, let's mourn and be yeah. sad. Let's celebration celebrate. of life. Of life, yeah. you know that, and at the same time too, you know, Sandra just kind of, as a child, just fully gives into that energy yeah. and vibe, and she that feeling, and just as she happens to be rubbing the corpse of the of the animal against her, she happens to receive her period. And what? How does her friend react to that? She runs away in fear, scared of her, not understanding, and then calls her friend a witch. Yes, the mother calls a witch. Yeah, calls her a witch and accuses her of her witchcraft. And I was like. Well, this is very interesting, mm-hmm. this element of this divineness and this energy and this feeling and this, like, embracing of death. Because often the witch herself is embracing of death, is embracing of all things. It's this idea of women are, are both involved in both, like, life and death. It's like the circular energy. And that's what Sandra feels she, she's always doing when she has intercourse with the corpse later on. She, she's bringing them to death, the, to the other side. And uh, there's uh, that... The funeral home worker, I forget his name, sorry, but he uh, works at the funeral home. He's Catholic, but he says that she has the hands like the Virgin. Yes. And tied that all kind of together because she does that. She Again, she has that kind of ethereal light and 
kind of in awe of her presence. She herself is so just like calm and soothing and mm-hmm. confident. Confidence she absolutely does have. 100%, especially when she is being hit on by a man. That was such a very interesting scene. But when she comes out, that confidence to come out to be honest about who she mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. really fascinated me about Sandra. True car. Many see it as the embalmer's sword. And this is what you call cavity aspiration, where we suck out all the goo and we replace it with more magic elixir. That way our young friend won't blow up like a pig. Wait. What? That's No, he's dead. You get used to the smell. Hose him down, dress him up, and apply a little makeup. Oh, Jan's gone for the day. Would you mind giving the floor a quick mop? And the front door locks behind you. You didn't faint. That's always a good sign. And so in film, we know female characters are generally seen as passive. So many horror movies we see that the women are victims, the girls are victims. And so going back to our discussion or our mention about how the female necrophiliac is a very transgressive character, Sandra is indulging with intercourse with male corpses, right? This is sexual activities that she enjoys unabashedly is involved with. And so he, he being the, the corpse that she is having these sexual trysts with, is unable to subject her to his gaze. So that's a really interesting part of it is that the male gaze is gone because they are dead. And that can be a very comfortable place for a woman to be in. And so I find that really interesting as well as this female necrophiliacs and and, and having sex with, if they choose to be, if they're heterosexual, having sex with male corpses. Well, and like literally as you were saying that, it just like light bulb went off. I'm like, this is why she is so uncomfortable in her relationship with Matt because he constantly subjects her to the male gaze and she is not used to that. Yeah. She is not used to being the object of someone's obsession, Mm -hmm. fascination, Mm -hmm. possessiveness, jealousy. She's never had to deal with that. She's always been on her own and is always, everything has been in on her terms yes. under her. And, and I remember at times we'd be like, why are you dating this guy named Matt when you don't seem like you're getting much from it? Yeah. But I can see where she, would she be trying to just see if she could have a normal relationship? Because A, she also feels like he understood her. And in the beginning, yes, there was. So before we move on to him. So what type of necrophiliac is Sandra would we say? I would say she's a regular necrophile. So the performance of sexual acts with corpses as their jobs provide access to come in contact with dead bodies. A lot of necrophiliacs, they try to get jobs in areas like morgues, funeral homes, etc., where they will have full access to 
the objects of their desire. So I would say she's a regular necrophile. 100%. Like, <laughs> she checks off a couple things yes. in the, the classifications when it comes to, like, material and stuff like that, and sentimental. Yeah. Uh, definitely. She is... I feel like she's at, like, the one to five <laughs> of, like, necroph- of necrophiles. Yeah, she's not, like, a... Neither of these women are, like, hard-pressed certain uh, classifications, because, you yeah. know, women, we're yeah. complex. We're exactly. complex. Uh, so let's move into, you brought up Matt, we brought up Mr. Wallace. So let's talk about like the male responses to necrophilia, the relationships that Sandra has with men in this. And you started a really great segue into this. So Mr. Wallace is the funeral director where she works. So he calls them patients. But apparently we are told by the little Catholic male worker that he makes dirty jokes about the bodies. And he says that he's a troubled man. And he says that, quote, he likes boys. He caught him once. So here we are, a male necrophile being gross, essentially. He likes little boys. He likes to have sex with little boy dead bodies. And for him, he's like, it's all dead flesh. They can't feel anything. It's not really a big deal. He's the classic example of the male necrophiles that, you know, Karen Greeley talked about in the in this in this industry, right? Yeah. That's it's literally just an object. It's literally just another body or piece of meat to stick their dick into. Um <laughs> I know that's very vulgar, but it's true. It's true. It is true. They don't they don't view these bodies as living anymore. Mm-hmm. They are dead. They are objects. They can do what they want. Even when he's performing, he's yeah. showing Sandra how to do an actual embalming. He's very callous with the corpse. He makes jokes. He's like, here's my sword. Jab it mm-hmm. in. And she's feeling like the sense of like, ouch, yeah. doesn't it hurt? And he's like, no, it's dead. Yeah. The bodily integrity you know? is very important to Sandra. Different are Monica over a a necromantic too, but bodily integrity is very important to her. And though she does jump into and wants to become an embalmer, but she, I think, would have a much more delicate uh, process. Um, So that's one male in her life. The other one is Matt. So Matt thinks Sandra is so interesting and complex, but she does get into this monogamous relationship with Matt, who seems wonderful at first, and she doesn't hide her necrophilia. Like, it's pretty quickly brought to the forefront. She yeah. comes out and tells him. He immediately accepts it, is very intrigued by it. But then, like you said, he becomes obsessed with it. He wants to know every dirty graphic detail, which is a very personal and private experience for her. And eventually, he even follows her. She's like, you've been following me? And he says, you should be flattered. Matt's kind of a dink. He is such a dink right from the get-go. Like she is sitting happily in this restaurant doing her research yep. because she's in a, she's in college now for embalming. Yep. This is really what she wants to do. And he pursues her. He approaches her out of nowhere and strikes up this conversation. Yep. And what she thinks, what he said to pick her up is actually something he believed. And I will definitely, I argue that he is just saying that he's like, oh, you're looking about corpses and stuff like that. Well, I'm a smart man, medical student. And yeah, Mm -hmm. like I felt like he was saying something just to get her interest Mm -hmm. um, and to sound more sophisticated Mm -hmm. in talking with her. So when she's excited about like, oh my God, I may have met someone who may have understand what I feel and what I experience. This is amazing because imagine feeling so alone that you cannot connect with someone else in your community and you meet another individual a man who says I get this I understand why you do this and then when she does come out to him like she's flat like straight like yes. and I was shocked I was amazed at the same time too. I'm like great confidence in you yes. Sandra just to yep. be like 100% being like this is what I do mm-hmm. and he's like yeah I get it cool I accept it I love it but then he starts like treating her like an experiment yeah 
studying her. Like you said, he was stalking her. He's tracking her, mm-hmm. like... Trips to the like, more. Yeah. Her trips to the more, like, making medical notes and stuff like that. And you're just like, what are you doing? And then he starts acting like a jealous boyfriend. And like yeah. you said, quizzing her and asking very personal and intimate details about her experiences. He can't handle it. It brings out insecurities in him she's so confident and very just like yep matter of fact this is what i do it's called crossing over it's very important Mm -hmm. to me it's important to the bodies and he just in the end he actually just cannot handle it he's so deeply insecure and the way he treats sandra is like that she's the mentally ill one there's something wrong with you for doing this how could you do this there's me i'm right here but then as you're watching his descent you're like oh no you're the one who has some (laughs) medical mental health issues because a we've had first hint you dropped out of med school all of a sudden and usually when people drop out of med school all of a sudden it's because of the stress and the mental like anguish that they go through and they can't handle it something just does because it's so demanding of a field and then he just becomes so obsessed with her and mm-hmm. he just and not only just so obsessed of why she does it he he wants to not only he wants to experience it himself yes. and then he wants to force her to experience it with him yeah i know like, he gets into let's try role playing and then you know let's i i'm putting on quote makeup because i have my bad skin but oh really God, he's yeah. literally wearing corpse paint Like he just, it's this wild, fascinating, kind of infuriating, annoying descent into what happens into the end. He ends up making this, the necrophilia of Sandra, his whole identity. That's not her whole identity. That's not how she works. That's not how she is. I mean, Mm. she has a fascination and an interest and a reverence for, for death and corpses, and maybe he did too. I don't know. We don't end up finding out a lot about Matt. We still don't know why he dropped out of med school. Maybe because he's a fuck. No, he's a weirdo. Like he just in like a creepy way. Like he's not. He's very bizarre. And he even assaults her. Like he even assaults her. He is an example of fragile masculinity yes, that need to be the end all and be all of Sandra's world and her pleasure. Yes. He gets. It's like the idea of when men get jealous over women using toys to pleasure oh themselves. God. Right? They're like, yes. how could you do that? I'm right here, and you're like, well. Mm. It's not always about you. Get over yourself. Absolutely. And that's the thing with Matt. Like, even when Sandra's like, I don't want to stay at your apartment. I want to go home. He's like, he takes this as his personal slight. Right? There's, I'm sorry, but there are women who are just like, guess what? I sleep better at my house, so I'm just going to go home now. Thank you for the fuck. I'm gone. <laughs> like, Absolutely. No, absolutely. She is a necrosexual, okay? So she she knows what she is. She knows who she is and what she's all about. And like I said, I think that he just makes it his whole identity. And it's so weird yeah. to me. So speaking of sex, and that's what's, I, I mean, we have to talk about sex because oh, there is sure. a, a moment that they have had sex and she then leaves and goes to the morgue it was that night where it's like she it's too hot it's too busy it's too loud here i need to leave and she goes to the morgue to i'm sure finish herself off to have an orgasm okay folks so it's really neat to kind of see the play the the usage of light in this movie as well it helps with the the divination aspect of it because it's always like this bright shining kind of bleached out scenes when she is in the funeral home with the corpse so we also want to try to portray necrophilia in a less kind of dark creepy morbid kind of gothic way so we have this different kind of lighting but that kind of lighting is kind of what it's like when she's with matt but not when she goes to the funeral home she goes to the funeral home to quote crossover which means orgasm 
essentially. I mean, come on, let's call a spade a spade. She's crossing over. (laughs) She's going to have an orgasm because, folks, we don't always orgasm with just penis vagina sex. Like, we just have to deal with it. So, and there's this... I made a note where I said her face looks like she's at the gynecologist when he's going down on her. She's just like, uh, just her facial expressions is like, this is not, she's not having a great time. I mean, she does still, I think, want to engage. She's not fully satisfied. And that's our female Mm -hmm. necrophiliacs that we're talking about today, that they're not satisfied. There may be satisfactory like there's like it's a quote enough for now it gets us to a certain point but yeah she looks like she's at the gynecologist which folks it's not that fun so that's not how you should be I can relate you should be enjoying your oral sex and also with like Sandra she is and something I noted in the film was her acts of seduction she feels very confident when she's around a corpse she is in control she is doing a sexy dance she is like doing her ritual around it I just remember being so stricken by just how good she looks and feels Mm -hmm. about what she's doing and how she's approaching her partner when she's dominant in her role and when she's with Matt she felt her first sexual experience with Matt she was so awkward yeah like awkwardly like trying to seduce him take her clothes off and like she doesn't know what to do because now he's touching her and she's like oh wait this is not yeah this is not how it goes for me and you can see that she was in her head and like you said when he goes down on her she's she's in her head this doesn't feel right this is weird and you know he instantly puts her into the uh, submissive passive position Mm -hmm. which in her instances with the corpses she in the dominant on top role. Yeah. To round off this discussion about Kiss, what came up to me while I was watching, again, both of these movies, but predominantly this one, is that necrophilia is inherently polyamorous. It is a polyamorous, non-penetrative act, which in and of itself is political and subversive and perhaps feminist, which we will talk about later. But I feel like Sandra's necrosexuality provides her solitude, meditation, and comfort. She is transgressive. She seeks to end boundaries. And I think the movie seeks the same. Like we're trying to remove the boundaries of sexuality, remove the boundaries of pleasure into a different realm. Because like you said, I love that point because she was very comfortable in having a day-to-day relationship with Matt, Mm -hmm. like going to see movies, going out for dinner and stuff like that, and then fulfilling her sexual needs with the corpses. Mm -hmm. And at first she thought, hey, Matt, you're okay with this. He wasn't like all other monogamous men if with women in, who are poly. Nope, not okay with that at all. Too insecure. <laughs> Too insecure, which leads us into our next film. Which is Necromantic 2, Return of the Loving Dead from 
So I know your story, Jess. I showed you this movie a couple of years ago for disturbing films for a curious mind. And I remember I re-listened to that episode recently and you said it would be a long time before you revisited that movie (laughs) and maybe you wouldn't ever revisit it. And then you have a few times since. You're correct. I have. I watched it New Year's Eve at yep. the end of 2022. Monica decapitates Mark. And <laughs> Ringing in I the new year. 20, running in 2023 with Monica having sex with the corpse. And I'm like, and yes, watch it since. But Kelly, tell us your story with this film because you, it's your favorite. It you is. You talk about it all the time. It is one of my favorite disturbing movies. Well, I had seen Necromantic, uh, the first one, a good number of years ago. And so it was probably about five or six years ago. Uh, I just was in this like buying up of a variety of different movies because I had just gone through a breakup. So my movie collection was quite small. And I just saw somebody selling Necromantic 1 and 2, the re- these really great barrel entertainment releases, like fantastic DVD releases of them, the best that were around at that time. So I had that one was a blind buy. Um, and I already was a fan of Jörg Budgeret's work. And so I feel like this is a movie that I didn't particularly love when I first watched it, but I've now watched it a bunch of times and I just love it more and more each time. It really does. It's a movie, frankly, that I relate to on a lot of different levels. Um, <laughs> so I just relate to Monica in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, I am Monica in, in, in many ways. It's no longer an inside joke. <laughs> Kelly is Monica. <laughs> I just am Monica. But what I like about this movie, what I love about this movie, I do love its style. So this is not our soft lighting MGM Hollywood necrophilia movie. This is our exploitation movie. This is going to get gross. It's going to get gross. But I love the style. It is gruesome. It's disturbing to me. Inspirational. I love the score. I love the score of both of these movies so much. The effects are really great. And I'm also really happy to see a lot of high ratings on Letterboxd for this movie because I think it's absolutely fantastic. I will have to agree with you. Like I said, when I first watched it for the first time, I was like, ugh, assault. Like, I was not yeah. used to that type yeah. of, like, you know, because for me, necrophilia, I hadn't really actually seen it. Like, this was actually my first female neck. Nope. Sorry, I did see the Neon Demon. Yeah. And I remember having it being that more stylized. But this yeah. was my first time with Necromantic 2 and knowing all I knew about it and about Jörg Bertogret and his films, especially Necromantic 1, I was like, I didn't know what to expect. And of course, he started off with like a really graphic scene. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah, we're getting into it, but I will agree with you. I like the message of empowerment from this film. This Monica herself as a character, this unseemingly beautiful young woman who just knows what she wants and will not deny herself getting what she wants. I really like that. Then, like you said, the score is great. I love German films. I love how mm-hmm. weird they are and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so, and I love how you there's various elements in this film that you pick up that really build a story. And like we've. Like you've said, the many watches you've started to see and I've started to see things like very small little things. You're like, that gives you more into the film that you didn't realize before. And also about how it shows the sex is more more explicit in this film. Mm -hmm. Where like Kissed is more stylized and romantic. Mm -hmm. Necromantic too feels very earthy and very grounded in like Mm -hmm. really primal emotions Mm -hmm. of passion and lust. It's a very lusty film. Mm -hmm. And... For me, the only thing that I, I don't like about this film or feel uncomfortable around is the rot and the decay. <laughs> I 
like I think that's awesome normal practical response. effects. <laughs> like and is like in this, yeah. but it's kudos to the practical effects of this film yeah. because that is something you do end up thinking about when it comes to a corpse. Like Sandra, her corpses are embalmed, so they're yes. very medical and sterile. Yeah. Not Monica's corpses. No. They're rotting. They're decaying. Yeah. And that is also very fascinating at the same time, too. Yeah. So that's again, that's there's all these different elements, right? And these layers of necrophilia and people will think about what comes to their mind are like these gross corpses and less of the embalmed, cleaned up, mm-hmm. like the preserved. So they l- still look like people. The corpses of Necromantic 1 and 2 do not really look like people anymore. They're just like husks of people. So I liked that realism of it as well, because there's different elements, right? Depending on the necro- necrophile, the the corpse, it will matter or it won't matter. Like we know, Sandra, the integrity of the body is very vital. So I don't think uh-huh. she would want a decaying corpse. She wants something clean because yeah. we're getting it prepared for crossing over. We, it's, you know, the other ones are like... Let's say they're very crossed over. <laughs> they're very crossed over. and They're expired. Just make, <laughs> literally. They have passed their expiration date. Um, and just to mention to people, because I know we talked about in that episode of Disturbing Films for Curious Mind, too, that would I ever visit the first one, Necromantic 1? I have since then seen that film. Yes. I do like Necromantic 2 more than the first one. But we'll, and we'll get into the discussions about why I like Necromantic 2 so much. But I have seen Necromantic 1, mm-hmm. so yes. I, I rounded out the feelings <laughs> around it. <laughs> and I would say the the only thing I don't like about this movie is just it's just a titch too long. Like, yes. it could just be, like, just edited down, like, a little bit. But yeah. otherwise, I love it. I love it so much. Romantic too. So it was directed by Joad Bruchret and is part of the new wave of horror films that were produced in Germany in the 1980s. It was really interesting doing some research in this film is that it first premiered at a feminist film festival in Vienna um, that was focused on showing uh, films as women as aggressors. So while it received like positive attention at these film festivals, it did actually have negative attention for it in Germany. So while his first film, Necromantic, kind of went under the German censorship radar, his second film got banned and he had his home raided mm-hmm. because people were looking for copies of this film mm-hmm. because they said it was glorifying violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and York and York talks about how this is usually a way for them to get rid of movies that they felt were like Nazi propaganda instead of seeing it as a a film expressing artistic expression about a metaphor of being of East Germany and being forced into these roles of censorship. Uh, Yeah, it was banned. I rewatched Necromantic 2 with a commentary on because I have that uh, on the disc and thankfully they all spoke English. So Boutgaret actually believes this 
quote, glorifying violence is because Monica isn't accused or demonized for her acts. It's just, it is. Nobody, she's not punished. We're not saying she's a bad person. She's another sympathetic character. So that's what he thinks. And talking about, you know, the female aggressor. So a quote from Monica M, who plays Monica, our protagonist said, women tend to like the movie because they had the possibility to identify with the main character, a woman who is an aggressor, which is fine. I regard myself as liberated. I did the movie because I wanted to when I liked it kind of did her thing she's I think she identifies with and I think there's aspects of it then yes like I said I absolutely identify with so many aspects of of Monica and I sympathize with her with her plight and her story especially too that York found Monica the actor a Lucio Fulci film housed by the cemetery and she had actually seen Necromantic One mm-hmm. and Boutigret's other film so she was actually really open to the idea yes. of playing a female necrophile, didn't have a problem with anything that York asked her to do, and he was actually more concerned about exploiting her than her actually doing what she was asked to do, and he like he kept her really involved in the making of this film, all the editing and stuff like that, because he felt that she brought a real innocent to a character that is also really beautiful, but also like a straight shooter. Like mm-hmm. she, she just takes a step further in these roles that he wants to explore with women in films and it's just really interesting because he like he said he takes the the mental condition of male necrophilia and like spins it on his head and said you know no women are not supposed to no women are not always like passive and and non-resistant female bodies they are you know they are in charge they can be very assertive it challenges it subverts the conventions of sex and like we were going to talk about monica prefers to be dominant she values her sexual fulfillment she's an active female participant Mm -hmm. which kind of sometimes also brings us into the territory of the femme fatale and we can we'll get into that as well because that monica can also kind of be seen as like a violent and dangerous woman which is kind of like saying that the femme fatale like a a dominant woman is a dangerous woman which is not necessary at the case when we Mm talk about femme fatales in our day balique episode and one of the things that we're going to talk about too and i wanted to bring up that york talked about this film and the themes in this movie is this idea of normal versus not normal Mm -hmm. and this is really big in german culture that often they think there's something wrong with you and that a lot of German horror filmmakers and fans have to often justify themselves and justify their actions and why they're doing things. And this is what we kind of see, what we see in Necromantic too. Monica has to justify herself and justify what she's doing to her partner. And, and she's not weird in any way, but like she has to feel like she has to say like, well, no, this is who I am, but I have to justify why I do my actions so that people could accept me for who I am. A deviation from a quote, normal life. In Necromantic 2, necrophilia is shown in the domestic sphere in Mm, kiss it's not it's all the necrophilia happens at the funeral home in a morgue and that again very sterile environment monica brings the corpse home she opening scene she's dressed up ready for her date to dig up a corpse of a man and bring it home but you know she lives a happy solo life she goes to the movies alone. She lives alone. There's, everything is like, this is also a very private thing for her, but she brings it into her home. And, a, you know, a lot of our sexual escapades happen in the privacy of our own home. 
And you said that she's just wants to be liked for who she is. And she is also weird in the sense of she's got clippings of Rob, who is our necrophile from the first necromantic movie on her wall. She's got x-rays, skeletons, skulls, like candles. There's a, if you, folks, if you haven't noticed, she also has a child's coffin on the floor that she just like throws yep, her clothes yep. on and keeps Rob's head inside of a child's coffin. I wish I had a child's coffin. <laughs> But she's very, I, for me, very relatable. I have all those things besides the child's coffin. I also don't have a corpse here. So. <laughs> well, and she has the artwork of Karen, uh, Karen Green Lee in her home as yes. well. Like there's yeah. pictures of like various things from various actual books that York had mentioned. He wanted to ground this film in reality. Yeah. Karen Greenlee, we've already talked about her. She's a real necrophile. There are actual books out there of faces of death and mm-hmm. people like Monica is, a, is fascinated by death as yes. well. The whole thing, yep. everything. Not just the sterility of it, yeah. but how the body decays after it and what the body looks like under yeah. it. She is. She's a medical professional. Just going to jump in there. It's because she's a nurse. She's a medical professional, so she's cool. She's cool with a yeah. decaying body. It's fine. Which challenges this other idea of this monstrosity to her. Like, we're yeah. supposed to see the Monica as this villain, but we don't, we don't because we're getting to see her life her private life she is a nurse she knows how to take care of the body she keeps it clean her home is very clean yeah. she has friends she has other female necrophiles who are friends with she has this community and we're, mm-hmm. we start to see this normalization of yes. Monica and you're like she's not a bad person she's just experiencing the same thing a lot of us all experience in relationships which is unspoken truth and unspoken needs and desires that do not get fulfilled Absolutely. And so bringing this, again, the privacy of it all, which she has to, because not everybody can be so candid and do an interview about your necrophiliac ways, right? But she brings the corpse in, she keeps them clean, maintains it, takes photos of the propped up corpse wearing men's clothing like a boyfriend. Like she's trying to create this, quote, normal life with a abnormal boyfriend, which is the corpse. And it's all about, like you said, the, the perverse and not perverse, the normalized and abnormal. That scene later on when Mark, who she ends up having, again, a monogamous heterosexual relationship with he shows up at her house when she's having all of her macabre friends over let's say possibly necrophiles let's just say that they all are why not but he they abruptly leave he comes in and he's seen as the outsider he's the outsider of all this their lives are normalized they're all just like yeah we're just gonna watch this documentary about death about a dissection Mm -hmm. of a a seal eating drinking with a corp like a just a, a decapitated head around us this is normal this is their normal life he is the weird one he's the outsider and they're trying to like blend bring these two lives together and of course we're we're butting heads it doesn't it does not mesh i'm putting my fingers together i'm like that fits but they don't fit they're trying to fit she does not fit they do not fit well together for many different reasons and i know we talked about female dominance and she like you said monica is a very dominant woman can relate She plays an active role, not only in a relationship, in sex, but also in her necrophilia. Again, that's a dominant place to be. Look at the 
poster for this movie, folks. It is her with a corpse at its neck. I was foreshadowing, mm. let's say, what's to come. And like you said, though, in, in all her acts with the corpse, everything is very solo. Monica is a very solo individual. What yes. does she do? She is digging up the corpse herself. Yes. She digs it up, brings it back. Everything is done on her own because, yeah, yep. we know it's obviously got to be very private. But other things we notice about in her life, like she has her own apartment. She lives very mm-hmm. well, it looks like. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting how she goes, she's going to a movie by herself. By herself, yeah. By herself. And then she just gets approached by this man and be like, hey, I have this ticket. And he really like, and when another one where a man kind of inserts himself into her life mm-hmm. when she's more than happy than just continuing doing what she was doing. She's yep. probably going to go watch that movie and then go home and have, you know, be amorous with her. Yeah, have sex with the <laughs> sex corpse. With her like, you know, it's just really interesting how we have to watch her just kind of living her life and then she sees this guy who's like, oh, I'm all of a sudden interested in you. And she's like, well, I guess I have to try and normalize myself now. And all of a sudden her life that she felt like she was very, could be kind of just herself about, all of a sudden has to become very private again and segregated from everyone else. She has to just segregate her life and you can just tell with Monica that like uh, she's just not too happy about this. This doesn't feel right to her, especially when she has to have her breakup. It's gross. It's a gross scene to like chopping up a corpse, but she's sad about it. She's upset. compartmentalizing right or like okay well I'm a necrophiliac how is this going to work with this new person we saw with Mm -hmm. Sandra was very different like she was like open about it right away she's like this is just it I am a necrophiliac you know I have sex with dead bodies I go to the morgue I work here this is my life this is this is me though I feel like she is confident she's not that confident she just I feel again she's so relatable she just like starts showing those vulnerabilities so yeah let's talk about their relationship so we have Mark so this is her attempt at a quote normal life and and like i said it's not fitting but she tries and in order to do this proper she's gotta get rid of the evidence so it is an incredible scene in the movie it's got a great music over top of it she's like crying but first she's got to like contemplate what she's doing she caresses it because she shows a lot of uh also compassion and gentleness and affection towards the corpse the gentle kisses the caressing And she even tries to, I feel like, dismember him in a loving way, but she doesn't want to do this, but it's this pressure of trying to normalize her life. She does keep his head in penis, um, but she is sad. She's crying. It's a very emotional scene. She's showing vulnerability. We don't see that with Sandra. I love Sandra. She's very interesting. But Monica Mm -hmm. shows some vulnerabilities, right? A little, like, some cracks in that kind of veneer a little bit of, okay, Let's try this out. So with Mark, she starts showing that necro side of her, her next, her uh-huh. fascination with death. Here's my family photo album and there's a lot of funeral photos and death photography. 
which is not a commonplace thing to have in your, uh, you know, your family album. Skulls all over her There's apartment. skulls. <laughs> it's me. You know, and then it progresses to Monica taking Polaroids and photos of Mark naked, hanging from the ceiling, being kind of cheeky. Isn't this kind of funny? And then it comes down to... She shows him that seal autopsy. He's like, what movie were you and your friends watching? He's like, um, all right, well, I'll show it to you and let's see what happens. This is the pinnacle point. This is like this turning point for their relationship. And it comes with an argument because he's upset by this. He's like, I can't like I can't understand why you're watching this. He thinks she's perverse. And then they have that argument about what's perverse or not. He works in porn. We didn't say this, but Mark works at dubbing pornography. And some might feel like that's perverse, but he thinks she's perverse. It's like, well, who's like the pot calling the kettle black here? And she's like, not not everybody is like that. Not everybody gets turned on by pornography. Sometimes it's other things. She doesn't come right out and say it's death. But that's like, again, that turning point in their relationship. She's like, I've shown you so much of who I am. And now you're calling me perverse. Especially when she sacrificed so much to be in in this monogamous relationship with a living man. Because they're happy. Like when we see them first start dating and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, they're joking around. They have that wonderful day in the park and stuff like that. And then they have their first time having sex together. And Monica is not satisfied. <laughs> Absolutely you not. You can tell yep. with the fact that he gets off, he's done, and she has this visible look on her face. I remember texting Kelly being like, <laughs> just this look of annoyance of like, that's it? This is it? That's it? It is she it. She just had, she literally <laughs> just had to finish dismembering the the source of her physical pleasure. Yeah. And her satisfaction so that she decided to so that she could have this relationship with this living man who at the same time, too, I can imagine she was like, oh, he works in porn. So he probably has some interest in this. He probably knows some things. He's probably good at it. She doesn't know that he's really bad at his job because we've seen (laughs) scenes of him earlier. Not even (laughs) like he can't even get the his like co-partner aroused. So when he starts having sex and think he's so great at stuff like that, he's all of a sudden better at his work. But she's more dissatisfied. And she and like I said earlier, she suffers from the same things a lot of women suffer in various relationships, dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. unfulfilled needs, thinking that this, I have to just do this and this will be it for me. But that's not it for Monica. And like you said, she starts doing things. She's like, no, we're going to role play. You're going to be a dead corpse. And this is how I'm going to get my pleasure. I'm dominant. I'm in the dominant position. And what what does a society tell us? Dominant when women are violent and dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We are going to be afraid of us. We are, you don't know what we're going to do. Well, she cuts off his head. But prior to that, yes, she's, again, <laughs> she is pressured into living a normal life. She's unsatisfied. I think we, as so many of us can relate. I know you and I, Jess, can relate to being deeply unsatisfied with the patriarchal yep. norms, the heteronormative lifestyle, the, quote, standards of relationships and sex. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. So Monica's fighting against this dichotomy of retaining herself, her individuality, or losing it to subscribe to the dominant social norms and constructs. For me, and I think through this film, through necrophilia, Monica is liberated. I will 
100% agree with you in that comment because that's what we see in the end of this film. Yes, she goes to the extent of decapitating Mark and replacing the head of Mark with that of Rob that she kept so lovingly. Mm-hmm. But it, it is this, because she was so vulnerable with him in that moment. And to see that rejection, to hear how he treats her, it's like, that's not cool, Monica. No. And like to have her, you know, spend the time thinking about like, do I give up on yeah. my on my ways or do I continue this relationship? It's really, I would love to hear her thought process of like how she went from being like, okay, I should just break up with this guy and just move on with my life. She's like, no, 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 I'm going to like still have sex with him, but I'm just going to kill him to <laughs> have my sexual pleasure. So I think Monica is a bit of a homicidal necrophilia. She's, she's got, <laughs> she's got some, yeah, she definitely does. I was going to say she, I was going to say she's a true necrophile. Yeah. She's exclusively interested in the corpses and not in the living person. They are capable of killing a person to get a corpse. Yeah, I think okay, there's yeah. like aspects of her that was like fine with trying out sex with him. But as we see, it, it doesn't really work out. And our female necrophiliacs subvert this binary of subversive woman, active man. That's apparently how sex is supposed to be, but it's prevalent in our culture. That is sex. And it doesn't have to be that way. And Monica tries it, is not satisfied. So she subverts all of our expectations and takes it to an extreme. But she finally has some kind of chemistry, some sexual energy happening in that final moment. She's finally enjoying heterosexual sex. Because she's murdering and having sex with the person she really wants to have sex with, and that's Rob. We need a new body for Rob. So during a letterbox deep dive, I guess we'll say, Satan Love letterboxed, looking at a variety of different necrophilia and film lists that are on there, there was a statement that I thought was very bold and very intriguing that I thought we would unpack today to kind of round off this episode. So the statement is as follows. Necrophilia is a feminist act. Defiling a corpse robs a man of his virility, but a woman doing it gives her agency. If the male gaze is at living flesh, then the female gaze is at the dead. Jess, you go first. Yeah, so when Kelly first shared the statement with me prior to watching the film Kiss and doing all this research that we did this past month, I didn't know where I stood with it. I was like, are we sure? I'm not sure. But then after watching these films, making my notes and my observations, getting into the research and also having very passionate discussions with people about <laughs> necrophilia this past month, a lot of discussions. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> I can definitely see how this statement has validity to it. Sandra and Monica both have agencies in these films. And while arguments against female necrophilia seem to be built upon the notion of female dominance as an evil condition and will lead to dangerous women depriving men of virility, This sounds very similar to other arguments against women who identify as witches and witchcraft. Women who are also accused of using dark magic to steal male genitalia and emasculate them. Elements of witchcraft can be seen in both these films in that interview when Lee was somewhat accused of witchcraft for her necrophilia acts because it was somehow related to a ritual of dark magic. I'm not saying that witchcraft and female necrophilia go hand in hand, but what I'm saying is that they both mean very similar things. Empowerment, bodily autonomy, female agency, ultimately standing against the patriarchy and subverting the male gaze. Female necrophilia is linked to both sexual and gender subversions and in contradiction to the heteronormativity of patriarchal standards, which itself is ultimately a feminist act. Ooh, ooh, girl. 
Okay. Mic drop. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. For me. So I often struggle with confidently saying something's feminist. Just there's a comfortability with that. Maybe I just feel like I need to learn more, but it's, I just, I'm not always super confident on being so bold. This statement was very bold and I love bold statements. So having sex with a corpse as a man robs him of his manliness, his prowess, right? The ability to get himself a mate. There's no work involved. There's nothing to prove to anyone. The stakes are very low. A woman has sex with a corpse and it gives her agency. She is taking control of her sexuality without fear of harm. She can control the circumstances. She can control the consequences. She controls her orgasm. It's up to women to take control of our pleasure and she can do it in this safe space. We discuss at length the male gaze and its harm on women. The male gaze is a leering, hypersexualized one, whereas the female gaze is one of nuance and grace. Anytime a woman takes a stance or takes control of something in her life, especially our sexuality, it's political. Though I think this random letterbox statement is intriguing and very bold, I would also agree with it. Necrophilia is a feminist act. What do you think, dear listeners? Please let us know on all social media. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more. But what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. Before this episode, I will 100% admit that I was one of those people who, when they thought about necrophilia, I was repulsed by it. Because all I ever heard was about how men would defile corpses, particularly those of, of women. It was always whispered about in association with famous serial killers and the mentally disturbed. I never thought about it or wanted to think about it. But when I heard about the films Necromantic 1 and 2, I was intrigued, as I always am with cult and subversive cinema, especially when I heard about it was women fulfilling these sexual roles. So I will admit, I also would ask myself the question, but how do they do it? And then a long time ago, Kelly explained to me a scene in Necromantic 1 where Betty uses a steel rod to create essentially a dead dick dildo. And I was shocked. And then Kelly showed me Necromantic 2 for disturbing films for a curious mind. And while I was kind of grossed out by a lot of the decay and the rottingness of the film, the special effects were amazing. And I was fascinated by these acts of sexual empowerment and fulfillment that I was seeing in this very unseemly character of Monica. And then it struck me, there was something more that could be unpacked and discussed about. So this month's research was both fascinating, disturbing, eye-opening, and at times just fucking outright fear infuriating. Because in the world of the dead, I saw the same misogyny, the same patriarchal control that is both imposed and inflicted upon women's bodily autonomy. A woman who's either alive or dead is supposed to remain a passive object in men's eyes. While the woman as a corpse lover is a monstrosous perversion of nature because she goes against the very idea of femininity and womanhood that society continues to inflict upon her. Her bodily autonomy and agency is denied both in 
in life and in death. So what I enjoyed about these two films, this was challenged. Sandra and Monica are being true to themselves. They push back against the patriarchal double standards that show the complexities that exist when it comes to life, sex, and death. Necrophilia upsets people greatly. You know, probably for good reason. I understand it. It's odd and un- the unknown. We do have fears of the unknown. We're, quote, violating bodies. It's, quote, res- disrespecting the dead. It's a massive religious and cultural taboo worldwide. It makes people very uncomfortable. I get that. Like with all paraphilias and very taboo sexualities, it can be either a very private or personal experience for people like with women in these movies, or shameful, like with men and in other movies. But necrophilia beyond these two films as well can be seen as an extreme metaphor for the complexities of human emotions, desires, and relationships. Many disturbing movies carry with them these themes. You just have to look underneath the dark, macabre imagery to find it. And that's hard for some people, but also the reason I champion extreme horror and disturbing cult cinema. I love how in both movies, the women are not demonized, villainized, punished, or morally condemned. They are welcomed as complex women just trying to live in this world. Their world is one of abject horror, and it can be challenging to be a part of. Sandra is unabashedly herself. She apologizes to no one. She loves who she is. You can take her as she is or leave her the hell alone. Monica is the true master of her fate. She can be seen as an extreme metaphor of living your life as authentically as possible. Make your own rules and thrive. It's corpse fucking art. It's definitely not for everyone, but it is for me. And that ends our episode on loving the dead. Female necrophilia as shown in the subversive films Kissed and Necromantic 2. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our new intro and outro music, Kiss of the Creature, and to all you listeners. And we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com, on our social media, which is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, just search for the Spinsters of Horror. And we also have a Facebook group. Come chat with us in our Spinsters of Horror coven. We're on Letterboxd, so come search for us, Horror Spinsters or Spinsters of Horror. We're on YouTube, search for Spinsters of Horror. We post all of our mini-sodes and archive old live presentations and panels that we host and Jess has a monthly book club folks which started in January of 2023 this year so reach out to us for the discord link and uh, she will get back to you with that please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on any podcasting app you use please visit tpublic to purchase our merch And next month, we are venturing into the forest to discuss feral feminism and Lucky McKee's fantastic 2011 film, The Woman. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female.